0: In this episode, I'm joined by Drukmo Jaldakini, an international singer, recording artist, and practitioner of Tibetan mantra healing. Drukmo discusses her childhood in Amdo, Tibet, and the early musical and spiritual influences of her family and community. We learn how a chance meeting with Dr. Nida Chenat-Sang a frequent guest on the Guru Viking podcast and the man who would later become Drukmo's guru, kindled a passion for Tibetan medicine and spiritual practice in the Yutok Nyingtik tradition. Drukmo also talks about her experiences of cultural differences between East and West, the history and power of mantra healing, the importance of personal practices, and addresses common misconceptions about being the devotee of a guru. So without further ado, Drukmo Jal Dukmo Mojel, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. You were born in
0: 1989 in the village of Tongso, close to Repkong County, in the Amda region of northwestern Tibet. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your hometown and the circumstances in which you grew up.
1: It's a mountain village, almost at the border of um, farming area and uh, nomadic area. That's also why it it is quite unique uh, culture that uh, families will uh, have uh, two households in that area. One is called the summer house, uh, which is more to the uh, nomadic side of that landscape. And then the other is um, uh, uh, a bit lower and uh, you can cultivate different crops. So we grow green peas, potatoes, radish, and uh, barley. So these are the main um, crops that uh, people grow in the winter house we call. So we, we will, um, so the animals um, such as y- yaks, mm, sheep, will uh, uh, be uh, shifted from the uh, summer house to winter house <laughs> according to the season. <laughs> Yeah, and then the distance is about um, three kilometers apart. So I remember always walking with my grandma uh, from winter house to summer house, um, just to feed the animals. And then stay the afternoon, cause the sun and um, the, the scenery is just amazing. And she would work, um, collect um, the yagdans and uh, um make pie (laughs) by throwing them onto the walls (laughs) and dry them under the sun and then i would uh, sometimes help her to collect some yak dan sometimes just play on my own (laughs) so yeah that's uh that's one of the memories yeah one interesting thing (laughs) is that um uh, i i think one of those trips um that i i had with my grandpa our grandmom is that uh we we walked halfway and uh, uh it was the 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 grassland was just filled with flowers it was the best season of the year so we sat there and um uh, we were having a small rest and then my grandma saw this mm, blue Flower. I don't know the English name of that flower, but the the blue flower looks like has the shape of a witch hat. You know the witches, the hat of a witch. So um, and she puts the 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 pointy part of one flower into the into the like kind of like the the stomach into the other one, and she moves back and forth and she shows me. I think I was about six years old and shows me like that. And she says, this is. Um, the sexholic flower so it represents the action of uh, intercourse <laughs> so of course I was very young to understand what she was really talking about but I remembered that story and I remembered that flower and later on I was telling that story to my parents and which really shocked them and they were like who, who told you that?" <laughs> so uh, I mean that had that stuck in my head for a long time that in maybe in my um, early 20s then i kind of recognized that was the first uh, sex education i had (laughs) ever (laughs) with the flowers (laughs) yeah from the nature so that was that was one of the things that i can recall from uh, growing uh, in that region with my grandparents yeah
0: And speaking of your grandparents, you've mentioned that religion was an important part of your upbringing and your father was uh, following the Galukpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and your mother, the Nyingma style, and uh, that your grandfather was your first guru. Now, I assume that's occurring when you're still a young girl there in Amdo. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about the role that religion played in your family?
1: Let's say let's say the role of guru is always very much absent in everybody's like followers' um, life. You you have you you have this uh, certain um, amount of distance. You do not see your guru as you see your family. So I think the recognition of my grandpa being my guru is really because of his absence. Um, because he did many years of retreat solitary retreat um, and uh, it was um, it was always um, yeah like the the times that we we kids like grandkids meeting him was always somewhere in between his retreats or during his retreats and then he has this little retreat hut inside the inside the household as well so where has whereas where he does the retreat without communicating with people he would just do his uh, practices, but there is a little window, <laughs> wooden like the retreat hut has like a sliding wooden sliding door, and then it has this little um, window where the food is sent in, and then we kids will always go there and then open. You will, you are sometimes opening between the practices, and then we will be watching him like this, <laughs> or receive blessings. Yeah. So I think that was the, that was the, let's say the, the conventional understanding of guru, But uh, if, like when I came to the West, then um, like the, the, the stimulation of how West is understanding Tibetan Buddhism, um, uh, of course impacts me on how I view my uh, practice or my upbringing, and uh, I, uh, I have uh, definitely um, not recognized enough of uh, the the guidance from uh, the female members of my family, such as my grandma. That's why I remember that that story was like a really strong story for me and. Um, And then also the occasional because my grandma is not somebody who is expressive. She's uh, often doing her work She gave birth to 12 children four died um, and uh, eight uh, survived and uh, She 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 gave birth in the morning and then basically next day She's already working and uh, her elder sisters uh, or her elder daughters like my my eldest uh, Aunties were already mothers themselves, like they they were nurturing their younger sisters and brothers So it's a definitely a hard life, but uh, I um, um, I hardly uh, Experienced any I I hardly remember any days that she had uh, unpleasant emotions Like that really amazes me Uh, I remember once like i don't know what happened but her her lips were like like expressing that she's not happy but she doesn't have words she's just (laughs) i remember that expression and i i remember confirming with my mom what, what happened to grandma why she had that face and she said because she's sad she's angry and um um and then I hear stories, like my grandma passed away in 2009 when I was uh, about 15, 16 and I spent most of my summer holidays with her maybe two or three months um, uh, since uh, like when I started going to school then I could only go back in the summertime and spend time with them for the entire summer holiday for about two two months and then one month in the winter um, but because I'm, I'm the the um the grandchildren yeah i one of the grandchildren so i i won't be able to see a lot of the things a lot of the characteristic aspects of them because they will always treat us as children so i later on heard some of the most romantic stories i've heard <laughs> from my mom about them <laughs> so one thing is that uh, my my grandma is um adores my grandpa so much that um uh, she would uh, cook twice every single meal because uh, she uh, she knows that my grandpa likes uh, uh, food that are cooked in small quantity. But the entire family has yeah so many populations. So she cooks twice. So she cooks in small quantity and a larger quantity for the children because she wants to keep the taste and quality for 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 grandpa and uh that was very um um romantic <laughs> and uh, uh loving it's it's um it's a powerful uh, teaching of c- of love and uh compassion um i still have no idea how how she could do that <laughs> for for all the time and um, but yeah, without her support, I think my grandpa will also not be able to finish that. Um, you know, like two decades of um, uh, two decades of uh, uh, retreat. It's a co-working process.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly, do you know which lineages he was practicing in those two decades of retreat?
1: uh, He practices mainly uh, Longinesik. So,
0: so I'm curious. um, You mentioned coming to Europe. You came to Europe in 2013 at around the age of 14. Uh, Initially, with an ambition to learn Spanish, that was the main uh, objective, and or improve your Spanish. And you talked about encountering the European or, I suppose, Western view of. Tibetan Buddhism and how that's affected your own view of uh, your background. So I'm curious if you could outline some of the uh, views you encountered when you came to Europe that made you reconsider or re uh, rethink your relationship to some of these practices.
1: I think Tibetan society is generally patriarchal, and this patriarchal this patriarch may not be the same sense as um, uh, as it happens in, uh, as as it's understood in the West, let's say, so there is a stronger power uh, from the male side, but um, it doesn't necessarily diminish uh, the power of women in in the in the community. Um, but uh, women do tend uh, to um, to be less uh, emphasized in many ways if we look into the modern settings but uh in the traditional settings women actually had more power than men but that structure has been um distracted or let's say um like yeah distracted by by the industrialization um and uh yeah so for that reason, it may seem uh, a very chaotic thing to even uh, explain, but uh, uh, let me just call it patriarch uh, right now. <laughs> um, and then it does influence uh, us who grew up from that context, that cultural context, to uh, see uh, what's uh, what's seen as something more important. Therefore. Um, most of the males are and most of the lamas are impor- important uh, religious or non-religious leaders are always males so that influences how we value our own households so i think that really kind of uh, i was i was um, uh, in a box of that and when i came to the west then of course um, after um, almost a century or even more <laughs> a few centuries of uh, <laughs> revolution and whatnot, uh, people have gained this awareness of um, uh, many aspects that I would uh, <laughs> uh, uh, never even think about. Yeah, uh, Because industrialization has already been here for much longer time than us. And industrialization definitely uh, brought a lot of other aspect of nuances in, 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 in life, in how everything is shaped and uh, distributed and valued or understood. So those things uh, do influence me in rethinking uh, from the Western perspective. And uh, when I do think from the Western perspective, (laughs) it does uh, often confuse me. Um, Yeah, it does quite confuse me. I think I need to read more. Um, like, uh, understand more, uh, in order to get things clear and in in my own head, yeah.
0: What in particular confuses you?
1: The confusion itself, like, why do I um feel uh uncomfortable in thinking in certain ways, like some of the traditional ways I, like, I I, I grew up with. If I use those perspectives here, I feel uncomfortable. And when I use, (laughs) but I think this is, this is a, this is a like a, like a, not normal, but it it is becoming normal nowadays uh, due to the globalization and this multicultural um, melting pot um, that everybody is, uh, out there to share, out there to learn. And it will definitely mess up their own systems. <laughs> and it just needs a little bit, uh, it's like the rain um, um, and uh, the water, the, the dirt uh, under the water is all like uh, stirred. And you just have to wait for the rain to stop and uh, the, the dust to, yeah, to settle. Then you have the clarity again. Mm.
0: I assume that your upbringing in Amdo is also where you uh, began to sing and learn the melodies and songs that some of which you you employ today as a singer. Would that be fair to say?
1: Uh, not quite. Yeah, singing singing has always been a hobby for me, but singing anyway is a major culture in in the in tibet basically nobody doesn't sing (laughs) everybody sings and dances it's like who doesn't sing it's not even a talent (laughs) i mean that's the kind of view i grew up with (laughs) everybody in the household sings (laughs) so um yeah so i just took it um as um as a as a hobby, as a way of um, relaxing myself. But then like furthermore, if we talk about um, the uh, spiritual uh, chantings that I'm uh, doing in the, I think since 2015, that is rather a private practice that I had with family. Like we would chant together or we would go to we would uh, set um, off for pilgrimage trips where we sing uh, together and accumulate mantras and uh, make offering like voice offerings to certain places, mountains or gurus we meet. But that was very private. That was not something that I I would uh... yeah that that is something that the West influenced me definitely guy. Like I, I would uh, never think of that as something that I would present on the stage. And uh, it was... <laughs> so more often, uh, I um, I think since 2010, I was uh, involved uh, in um, these uh, singing competitions in China. So I, I did attend uh, one of the major, uh, kind of like iconic, Um, singing contest uh, national contest and I won top 30 Uh, so that kind of um, opened up some of the singing revenues but uh, quickly I retreated uh, due to recognizing the the cultural differences (laughs) it was uh, the the culture uh, the culture the 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 culture of um, artists in in the in in Chinese um, uh, cities are, uh, uh, I think they were really on the verge of industrializing and uh, uh, like materializing uh, the, the the artists. And I, I think I had a strong resist uh, in, in being materialized. So I retreated quickly, uh, whereas uh, Whereas I started, I, I love languages, so that's why I started uh, looking for other revenues, and uh, and uh, I, I met a group of uh, Spanish, uh, oh, no, they're Colombians, Colombians um, who came to do cultural uh, culture exchange in Gulok area, and um, yeah, they inspired me. I thought, okay, I would like to try to learn Spanish and uh, see if that helps me to get my passport. <laughs> And it all worked out just in a longer period of time. So uh, singing um, before coming to Europe was rather a leisure, uh, and the things that I sing are more pop and uh, folk. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, but then when I came to the West, um, I uh, you know you you go to a different uh, uh, country then people ask you oh yeah and then these um these um uh, nationality will will anyway uh limit you there <laughs> so they expect you to tell them something about your culture something about uh, where you come from so that kind of uh, guided me it was like uh, this riverbank so I just had to put the water there (laughs) Um, and uh, the the mantra singing as a public performance was rather an encouragement um, uh, under Dr. Nida so he kept on pushing me for (laughs) over two years he actually gave me that idea in 2012 but I could not Except uh, for me, it was uh, really private Really something that uh, you only do uh, as a It's like your vagina. Yeah It's like your genital organ. You do not just go and show your you know your genital organ. It's something really private Yeah (laughs) Giving that example, it seems that I'm showing my vagina vagina now, but (laughs) Maybe not appropriate (laughs) example but you know uh, the the privacy <laughs> the, the physical privacy or the mm, yeah um, then uh, the presentation of uh, mantra chanting uh, I try to uh, keep the mm, traditional procedure of chanting mantras so often in my concerts I always start with uh, um uh, Alikali uh, mantra and Omnidharma uh, uh, interdependence mantra and uh, five element mantra to purify fi- uh, five elements and then I always finish with uh, Vajrasattva I invite the crowd to sing with me the short Vajrasattva just in case <laughs> as a traditional uh, traditional procedure <laughs> Yeah, I mm, I think that's one of the methods I find, I found uh, that I um, uh, could personally feel comfortable in presenting mantras in public realm.
0: Singing the Vatrasapra mantra at the end, in particular, was one of the ways which you reconciled presenting these more private spiritual practices publicly. Is that what yeah. you mean? Yes not everyone will understand why those two things would come together. What is it about seeing the vajrasattva Mantra with people would somehow relieve your concerns?
1: Um, my upbringing tells me that whenever something is done wrong or you would like to um, reconcile that situation, that bad karma, either it involves others or not, um, whether it's mental, or physical, or energetical, you recite Vajrasattva Mantra. Minimum three times. That's my upbringing. So, I explain um, every mantra I sing in my concert. And that's why my mantra may not actually be a conventional concert setting, but rather a 50% lecture, 50% chanting uh, setting. Uh, This also gives the people the the, uh, space to have a basic understanding of what they're chanting. And then, you know, there's Google, there's internet, they can always be inspired and to read and study more. Yeah.
0: I'm curious about your passion for languages. Of course, your English is excellent. You speak Tibetan, I expect you learn mandarin in school also what other languages have you pursued
1: i don't know i've attempted spanish so i i still speak my broken spanish <laughs> since uh moving to estonia i haven't been able to practice much but uh luckily um i uh luckily i still remember my vocabulary so i i'm able to understand others and uh express um my basic needs and uh interaction yeah and then now at the moment i'm learning estonian good luck yeah yeah i know (laughs) that's that's not an easy one 14 cases yeah it's really it's not confusing but it's a lot to process in the head and uh uh, quite of a gym quite of a brain gym (laughs)
0: Is your university course in Estonian or English?
1: Uh, it's an English
0: uh-huh.
1: international course. Yeah.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm curious. You mentioned there Dr. Nida Chenatsang, who's been a guest a number of times on this podcast. Uh, you mentioned he gave you the idea uh, initially of singing these spiritual uh, mantra songs uh, in a public setting in 2012, and that's before you came to Europe. So I'm curious. How did you meet Dr. Nida Chenetsang? Uh, can you talk about how it was you came to meet him?
1: I think I met Dr. Nida, I would address him as Genla teacher. So I, I uh, met Genla um, somewhere around 20, 2011. Uh, his nephew is my classmate. So uh, they needed uh, urgently urgently uh, translator, uh, Tibetan English translator. For a for a like a dinner um, conference and so I was called in to help that's how I met him and then um, he invited me next day to have uh, tea and uh, a simple meal And we had a uh, further uh, we, we um, yeah we talked for a couple of hours and uh, that kind of... Uh, um, that was the first interaction with Ganla and he left me some books and he left Uh, he he went back to europe and then a couple of a couple of weeks later he uh, contacted me and uh, asked me uh, to uh, start doing retreats i know the concept of retreat and i know that the male members of my family and communities would do retreat but i don't know any female uh, does that so uh, i mean that was that was uh inspiring uh and uh, i thought okay i i would uh, i would uh, uh have a try and then uh, my parents um were very supportive like when they found out that i was uh, i was uh, uh getting ready to do a retreat uh not so long seven days it's a then a, d- a, d- a dintum, like a seven day retreat so uh, they were happy. They were like, okay, we will have we will help you with um, other things So my mom was my so she would re- she would uh, bring food and uh, um, After the first uh, After the completion of the first retreat um, uh, uh, It um, many things start to change so one of the uh, most important aspect of that change would be uh, my uh, confidence in Ganla as a guru, oh. uh, because uh, uh, after the retreat, uh, my personal um, my personal understanding of uh, the Buddhist teachings I have received from family and from the community became clearer. uh uh, it's an inner process i don't know how i can semantically express that but uh it it became like a kind of like the fog went away and then it was very clear uh, that uh, i uh, would like to continue this path the other aspect was that it um uh it drew me closer to to better medicine Mm. And uh, yeah, there I started. Uh, um, Dr. Nida gave me the contact of a Tibetan hospital in uh, Siling, uh, where I uh, worked as an intern for a couple of months and uh, learned uh, um, uh, mainly external therapies um, from the external therapy department. And that was a precious experience, I would say. And uh, um, yeah, Doctor Nita has been guiding me on both spiritual and uh, medical teachings, and uh, he has been uh, uh, he he has been um, guiding uh, whoever <laughs> meets him <laughs> uh, with the same level of enthusiasm <laughs> and the same level of uh, open-heartedness. And, uh, that also um, uh, amazes me uh, and uh, sets an example of what compassion practice um, uh, is uh, um, can be um, uh, in one in, in one um, manifestation or one aspect and uh, uh, from that understanding it also helps me to um, kind of like naturally uh, value Um, uh, uh, um, others and uh, their um, presence. Um, And altogether this gives me a a deeper, I don't want to use the word deeper, Um, let's say um, understanding, just understanding of interdependence. Uh, because nothing uh, Dr. Nida has taught me um, um, overtakes me. It only um, gives me more uh, space to uh, obtain, or not obtain, like to let everything be. Yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm too abstract now.
0: (laughs) Not at all, actually. That's very interesting. I think many people, um, there can be a view that taking a guru can be a restrictive thing or uh, engaging in religious practice can be restrictive involving denial or at the very least conformity to a group style, beliefs, ways of acting and so on. Um, Guru is like taking a, a kind of boss or dictator for life. Some people have that. And I think there is a reluctance there to engage in certain in such a situation for that exact reason. I don't want to lose my autonomy. And in fact, that's a view that arguably could be said not just to be a misconception, that there are certain traditional presentations of the guru that could give that impression. Perhaps it's a wrong interpretation. Could you talk a bit about that?
1: um in my understanding uh, guru has many um, let's say many uh, many types of guru. let me put it that way. First guru is lineage guru whatever practice you're doing for example I'm doing youutotik then my lineage guru is Yutok, medicine Buddha I'm clear on that and uh, uh, my root guru is uh, the the guru who who um, Uh, Helped me to connect with my lineage guru, let's say. So Dr. Nita my root guru And then we have guru of all phenomena Like that's basically what I was talking about all phenomena that includes all the beings and non-beings Not like humans and non-humans nature And all those phenomena They aren't gurus But your root guru helps you to understand that they're gurus (laughs) and uh, um, there's no hegemony, like this place. Place uh, this play of hegemony is uh, rather a contamination of um, uh, elsewhere. Let's say, let's put it that way. And uh, um, of course, that hegemony definitely provides a sense of security and a sense of autonomy, as you addressed. Um, but uh, that means that your fear, or fear is reserved. So you'll always live with that fear. You can only uh, live with that fear and uh, reconcile that fear with that uh, sense of safety. Um, So it's a choice. Uh, For some people, I think um, if that's how much they can um, handle for this life, they should do that way. They should keep that way. It's not like, I'm not talking in a sense that they're inferior, Uh, uh, it's just, it's a, it's many lifetimes that we have to go through. Like you have to naturally uh, give in or naturally surpass your fear. It's not something you can force. Like uh, the the capitalization forces everything to happen. You know, it's like I'm forcing my ability to grow, and then and then you become crazy. Yeah? So it doesn't come from force. It comes from, it comes naturally, and it comes sometime, some <laughs> someday. And, uh, uh, yeah, so the root guru and lineage guru helps you to recognize that guru of all phenomena. And then the fourth guru is black guru, or um, the texts, the, the texts, yeah, because ancient, in the ancient time, people chant the texts once again, 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 so that the, the paper become, turn yellowish, reddish, and then black, so that they're addressed as black gurus. And then the last is Inunguru, your inner, your inner recognition, uh, your, your bodhicitta, let's say. So the place where you lay your bodhicitta. I may be, maybe this is only one aspect of it, my, like, we, we choose aspect, we choose a focus, yeah. So I think I have chosen the focus on compassion, particularly, but it may not apply to everybody yeah so my particular focus is on um, compassion practice so that compassion practice is um, uh, reflected from body speech and mind so I I reflected on my mental practice uh, my my visualizations my prayers who do I dedicate to like specific people and nominous and why do I do that like I often question myself because often the the, Creation stage and uh, completion stage of uh, Buddhist practices are really abstract and uh, really Really single-pointed and abstract and people can lose their basic focus The uh, basic focus should be clear and um, Yeah, so five I, in my understanding five types of guru. So you 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 do not just uh, on One guru. Yeah
0: Fascinating How does your particular focus on compassion express itself in terms of the practices that you do and the way you conduct yourself? And how was it that you came to that particular focus?
1: Uh, I also want to ask that question. Uh, I cannot, um, I cannot, (laughs) I cannot give a concrete answer to that. I think, um, you know, there is this, um this ongoing debate in between cultural determinism uh, determination yeah like we are the product of our surroundings like they shape us in how we're thinking okay if we go that line yes my family shaped me <laughs> so i go with that <laughs> my culture my family and and, and the other is like um, your your, init- your 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 like your nature like this magical nature that don't know from where. <laughs> from uh, consciousness, traveling consciousness uh, from different realms or genetic or don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, I-, I can't say where it comes from, but I am here with all the, um, the interdependent uh, contacts of all the human, non-human places I've been. Um, have shaped me in such way and uh, um, yeah.
0: Does your emphasis on compassion primarily show itself in the motivation for your practices or do you select specifically practices that uh, cultivate uh, compassion?
1: For me compassion practice uh, doesn't have a specific let's say if we really go for specificity like one-to-one yeah <laughs> then yes omani mani home yeah <laughs> that's it <laughs> and all the rituals that are related to the abelokiteshvara um, yeah but um once you understand compassion nature any practice you do is compassion nature what is not compassion nature <laughs> or let's say somebody who who focuses on wisdom yeah let's say and what is not wisdom? <laughs> you you see you see from one nature, one focus. That focus should not limit you, but that focus should be a how do you call this? Like a a way, a path for you to uh, like for you to emerge with everything, and that emergence doesn't come in the way how we understand. Um, our physical level yeah our physical level will be uh, is limited within time and space so we just go within that but our mind is free from that our mind can have multiple layers and multiple dimensions so the, the the most important is not to get attached to any of the layers and to understand that you are this water like you you are not shaped anywhere you can flow anywhere but then not losing your single point yeah so one of the most important uh, sayings that many tibetan especially young people that i that i am very uh, interested in because younger generation as uh, in tibet may not always be very close to tibet uh, like to buddhist teachings uh, oftentimes, but uh, you know, one of the things that many uh, many uh, young generations love is uh, a saying that uh, the founder of Serta, uh, you know, the, the biggest uh, Buddhist uh, college in uh, in Kham uh, area, so Kambunjik uh, Me Ponsok, so he, he said, uh, Don't lose your standpoint and don't disturb others uh view so this is very important yeah don't lose your standpoint but also don't disturb others views
0: (laughs) what do you mean by don't disturb others views
1: because you cannot impose your standpoint onto others oftentimes that's what happens like you you think okay what worked for you is like It's like mathematics, you know, it can, it can be just multiply itself in everybody, that's how, uh, that's also how uh, capitalism, uh, uh, capitalism formulation is, like they try to find one formula, okay, they apply it to everything, (laughs) but uh, here the fundamental logic is that you investigate everything to know yourself and you work yourself out. And do not impose your methods to others. You share. You share, but you, not, you do not impose. Yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah, I'm curious. I'd like to ask you about uh, NAK mantra. But before I do, after that first seven-day retreat, um, did you engage in further retreats under Dr. Nita Sang, your again-last guidance? Yeah.
1: yeah, so that started... Uh, so that started by the end of 2011. And then retreat uh, continued uh, on a yearly basis for almost one to two months every year.
0: Let's talk about Nak, shall we? I think many people may be aware of mantra being used in a spiritual context, but also you use mantra in a healing, it's part of your healing system also in that context. I'm curious what is a mantra, what are the purposes of mantra, and how are mantras specifically used in your healing system?
1: Mantra for healing started um, from, uh, let's say, written record, started from bone religion. So there was this uh, uh, pre-medical text before uh, Jushi, uh, uh, Bonshi, yeah? And Bonshi was uh, written by a uh, bone master, and uh, uh, many convenient rituals and, and uh, mantras were introduced in that book in order to heal. Um, then, uh, um, of course, uh, that became one of the sources. And then uh, the spiritual mantras um, imported, let's say, I don't know like introduced from India uh, also became part of it. And then uh, uh, the mantras that are uh, locally like uh, revealed like through uh, Bhema Sambhava's um, uh, revealing system, the Dharma system. So these became the three main sources, let's say, of healing mantras. And um, uh, often these mantras are practiced by religious uh, people and uh, doctors themselves. So they prescribe the mantras um, uh, as a supplementary uh, practice to manage the um, energetical state of the patient while they're receiving their intake medical treatments or external therapies. So mantras are often bound together with diet lifestyle external therapies and medicine that is also why uh, most of the and, uh, let's say uh, not most what I what I know yeah what I know like uh, all uh, hospitals in uh, Tibet have their shrine room so usually the herbs after being produced they will all uh, be sent to the shrine room and uh, Uh, many days of blessing puja, then they will shift back to the uh, selling department for people to purchase. Mm. Yeah. So this is uh, uh, practiced.
0: And is the power of the mantra in, say, healing context, in the effect it has on the mind when one repeats the mantra? Or is there something intrinsic to the syllables and sounds and meanings of the mantra itself that has a healing effect? In other words, does it matter what one says or that simply that one's using a repetitive uh, series of sounds to to have the healing effect?
1: So according to mantra healing system, uh, the mantras are shaped um, uh, according to their shape, the shape of the syllables, because uh, uh, Tibetan language um, Uh, and the sanskrit language are designed by uh, seeing the shapes of the chakras and channels inside the body yeah so when i say chakras and channels i refer to the uh, veins arteries muscle tissues um, nerves uh, ligaments tendons so all the shape of those so when we when we chant those mantras they resonate with the Certain part of our body they have like resonation when we're chanting and the other is the sound Sound I think is more famous in the West Um, like more recognized mantra through sound but actually mantra through sound uh, is only uh, One uh, according to mantra healing system and there's shape so you just visualize the shape You don't even have to chant you visualize the shape like silent chanting is actually more powerful the chanting with voice. Um, chanting with a voice helps you to concentrate, but powerful chanting is silent chanting. And then the other, the third one is the meaning. So some mantras, they have meanings. So some uh, Sanskrit words, some Tibetan words. So you investigate like uh, the most oftenly used words, like soha. But so, yeah, these are all like uh, uh, re- repeatedly used or appearing uh, syllables in many mantras.:
0: It's fascinating. Does the practice level, or the level of attainment of the mantra wielder affect the power of the mantra? And also, what is the role, if any, of initiation in the application and effectiveness of, of these mantra?
1: Um, could you re- rephrase? I didn't understand.
0: Well, the first question was, what uh, does the practice level of the, or the attainment level of the person who's using the mantra affect its power? For example, someone like myself with no uh, level or attainment in any uh, mantric or indeed spiritual systems at all. I can, of course, read a mantra, of, like you said, from Google. Um, but then somebody like you or Dr. Nita Chenetsang who are practitioners of this system with uh, deep retreat, deep practice, initiation, understanding, and so on in these systems. Of course, that represents a very different practice level or level of attainment between us. So it's that sort of context. Does the practice level of the mantra wielder affect the power of a mantra?
1: Yeah, of course. That's why we have the pre. Mantra practices like before you actually Chant all the available healing mantras. There are more than hundred Like every organ has their own mantra So before you go there you have to first purify your five elements so we do the five element mantras and uh, There's a larger number to it uh, suggested um, by the practitioners in the lineage to first purify your own five elements then when you chant it's effective for you and effective for others and this mantras is not only chanting you chant you bless substances so you have mantra substances such as water most commonly used and also other things that uh, can be used as uh, uh, therapies
0: So I know our time is coming to an end. So perhaps I'll ask you a couple more uh, of my most most pressing questions. Something you said as I was uh, researching your various interviews and talks, and I'll link some of those. Actually, you did a TED talk in Tallinn, very fascinating talk. Actually, I'll link that in the show notes so people can check that out. Uh, But in one of your um, one of the things I found about you. You mentioned your state of mind when you're doing the uh, performances of uh, your mantra, Tibetan healing mantra and spiritual mantra performances. Um, And you contrasted it with the the typical kind of singing state of mind that I suppose you would have done in your pop singing days also, or when you sing pop. Um, Uh,
1: Pop singing days. I don't know, maybe like really professional pop singers, they would find that because it's a matter of it's a matter of dedication. It's a matter of your connection to the practice you do. So if somebody who is dedicated to pop and really connected to pop and uh, pop music, I'm sure they experience the similar experiences that I have with mantra. Like with mantra, if I chant, I, I, I surpass time and space. Like one of the uh, experiences that I can recall is one of the uh, concerts we had in France, south of France or this at this concert it felt like half an hour it really just felt like a half an hour but it was already three three hours passed by and there were a hundred people a hundred plus and there were even some children in the front and nobody left and nobody like the kids didn't have any reactions and it was just magic yeah
0: okay well thank you very much for being so generous with your time here and uh, talking with me. What's the best place people can reach you to find out more and uh, hear your singing, hear your performances and also your teaching?
1: I think uh, one way would be my personal website. Um, another way is uh, um, uh, some of the organizers that I work with. Uh, in France, we have Utolin Toulouse. And uh, in U.S. we have uh, Pureland Farms. And in Estonia, we have Estonia, uh, Sotokan, Estonia. And uh, uh, in uh, uh, some of the Sotokans in uh, Sotokan organizations in Poland and Czech. Yeah, so through these organizations or myself.
0: Drup mogel thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast.